Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Ashish, for introducing me to our guest today, Nuno Pedro, one of the co-founders of Chameleon. Chameleon is a venture capital fund that typically invests at the seed and series A level, primarily focused on product-led technology companies. Some of their portfolio includes DraftKings, Robinhood, and KeepSafe. We discuss the evolution of e-commerce, if companies actually create new markets, and how he uses quant in order to make investment decisions. Without further ado, here's Nuno. Nuno, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm well. Yeah, very sunny California, very warm California. It is. It is. <laughs> I'm in LA. And I feel like the the weather has really picked up over the past few days. Glad all is well, and it's nice seeing that sun, especially this time of year. Want to start from the very beginning? What was your initial attraction, or how did you get interested in technology? Way back when, I've consumed way too much media, so TV and movies, since I was a kid. I used to read quite a bit. Uh, I still do read quite a bit, but I certainly consumed a lot of TV shows, movies, and I think the first memory I have is science fiction, right? And uh, and certainly with Star Wars and and all of that stuff. And I was like, this is fascinating. There's so much cool stuff out there. So in some ways, I think that was my first attraction to technology. And over time, as I looked more and more into it, I've always been a little bit of a hybrid. I'm a left brain, right brain kind of guy. You know, maybe we'll get into that later on. But there was something about you know technology and creating something in software or in hardware that was, in general, predictable. Not always predictable, but in general, predictable and relatively tangible, even in software. And so I think over time, I just got more and more excited about it. I started playing games. I started coding myself. I became a computer engineer. I have a master's in science and computer engineering. So it was sort of a crescendo. I don't think there was a, like a moment zero. I was like, oh my God, I need to be in technology. But it was like, it was clearly an important facet of, of my life. What do you find about technology? I know you've been in a number of roles. You've, you've worn a number of hats. But what landed you on venture capital and actually like more so like the investing side of things? What do you love about venture capital that's really quite unique? I think it's the end of something and it's maybe the beginning of something else. I've been in tech for a long time, 25 years. I'm actually not that old, but I started, I started working full-time through college, which was a bit masochistic as well. As I started doing it, you know, I, I've done a variety of different things. I've developed, I've been a product manager, engineering manager. I was a growth operator, strategy, corporate development, product, business development. I had a bit of a stint with McKinsey as well after being their client, which is extremely odd. I was a senior expert and, and member of the Asia-Pacific technology, media and telecom leadership team. And as part of that... I was working mostly with large corporations and you know it's difficult to make you know using Sir Lou Gerstner's words to make elephants dance and I am very lucky I'm very blessed I've worked in genuine projects and with genuine companies over my life not just as an operator directly or as a consultant that we did feel impact we did feel there was change and shift but the venture capital thing started really with starting to work with startups and in one in particular led by you know, three Israeli brothers, and they're doing some stuff around the area that I was in at that point in time when I was still at uh, GSM Association. In between GSM Association and McKinsey, I 
I helped them figure out their strategy and how they would go after carriers and, and how they would do a bunch of stuff. And then in the end, I ended up actually helping them exit right to uh, a NASDAQ quoted company. And I was hooked because the speed, the acceleration, the pace of startups is just so different from large organizations. It's not about the fact that large organizations don't have impact or they don't do big things at scale or even that they can have some velocity, but the acceleration in startups was like something I was hooked on. At some point in time when I was at McKinsey, I was like, I need to spend more time with these startups. At McKinsey, it was difficult back in the day. McKinsey has changed quite a bit since then, but it was difficult back in the day. And so I sort of put myself in that position. I started spending a lot of time in the Bay Area, although I was based in Asia. So in the San Francisco Bay Area, I took a few advisory board positions, worked with a few very early Android plays. And, you know, I was like, there's something here. And at a certain point in time, I was like, you know, how do I play in this market? Do I become an entrepreneur myself? And I was like, no, I'm too much of a portfolio guy. Am I a banker? I'm not a banker. I've done my fair bit of banking stuff over the years, and I've done corporate development by side as well. And so somehow it just coalesced, right? It was a bunch of circumstances that came together as part of an advisory board role. The people that I, the person that I was advising ended up merging with another organization. That person ended up, you know, reaching out to me and said, should we do something together? And a little bit by accident, and I think it was really the genesis of the, of the idea was really from, from this person and was like, let's do a venture capital firm, a micro venture capital firm, when the term was just coming out and let's do something. And, and so it was a little bit by accident. As I said, it's the end of something and the beginning of something else. In some ways, I feel being a venture capitalist uses all the skills that I've developed all over these years, right? So it uses the ability to do 80-20 analysis. As soon as you get in the room, five minutes in, you're sort of getting the industry more or less. My product management background brings me to understanding product. My ability to get people, I've worked with people most of my life, although you know, very early on I saw myself as a very big introvert. I think today I would see myself as an, an extreme extrovert, extreme introvert, so a real hardcore ambivert. So there's a lot of things I think in a lot of pieces that came together. The ability to bridge worlds, to be very polished around C-suites of you know, top companies in the world, tens of billions of dollars, and then just wear a Henley shirt like I am wearing right now and meet with entrepreneurs and be cool, right? And they're like, you're a cool guy, right? <laughs> so, so all of that, I think, came together in this, in this part of my career. Was it difficult, you know, I'd imagine working at McKinsey and also just advising or chatting with, as you say, like, like the billion-dollar company CEO and these large corporations, was it like a tough skill set to then change gears into venture capital since you're working with such early-stage companies? And you're chatting with such companies that don't have crazy budgets and are really trying to grow. Was that quite like a difficult part for you to do or, or not so much? Not so much. I've had a couple of friends of mine used to call me a paradox. <laughs> and then I had another friend of mine used to call me a, the best actor that they've ever met. I've never done any acting, by the way. So my philosophical view is I'm very eclectic. And I think in some ways, venture capital used all these different aspects, right? I can be super mega polished, right? I can be in front of someone. And it's very helpful sometimes to startups, right? You're in the front of, you know, trying to do a big BD deal and you need a little bit of help. You need a little bit of shepherding. It's good to have sort of this person coming in. And behaving like just like the way they do. Uh, I remember I had a story meeting a, a very well-known Japanese company, very large Japanese company, and I was with a, an entrepreneur, and we were meeting them. And you know, I brought my cards, gave him my cards with the two hands, gave the got the cards, and the entrepreneur was looking at me like, "What are you doing?" And it's like, "This is how you do it in Japan." And this guy thought I was just a nice guy, right? So it's like, yeah, you're a cool guy. And so in some ways, it's not, it wasn't very difficult for me. It uses both sides. Sometimes it's important to be, I would say there are skills that I brought from McKinsey that I use all the time, right? Being structured. 
problem solving, you know, being clear in terms of analysis and getting to the gist of it and being sharp in that analysis and the insight of what is there. And that I use every day, every single day. So I wouldn't say that's like there's a, a problem with the skill set you bring from there. It's actually extremely valuable. And you have a lot of great entrepreneurs that were ex-McKinseyites and a lot of great VCs that are ex-McKinseyites. In some ways, I think I just, it, for me, it's more natural to be informal than formal. But because I had like six years of formality with McKinsey in Asia, it's sort of, I can do that with my eyes closed. I can put the suit on and look just like anyone else. And then I can take it out and put my t-shirt or hoodie and everyone's like, oh, you're a cool guy. So it's, it's for me, it's honestly very, very simple. It's, I, I don't have multiple personality disorder. I, I just sort of, that's my environment. I like shifting from one side. Maybe I do. I like shifting from one side to the other. I'm curious, since you've had a lot of experience in Asia, do you ever look at Asia and say, you know what, I can see this type of technology coming over to the US and why it would make its way to the West versus some of the others which you don't think maybe are as relevant to the West? Or how do you kind of think of these like kind of cross-border sharing of technology? From an Asian perspective, I start with first principles. Asia doesn't really exist. It's a, I call it a Western construct. I, I think Europe, certainly Western Europe, is, is more monolithic. You know, we Portuguese always think that the Germans are very different, etc. But we're more similar than I think all the different countries in Asia. You can go from China, Beijing, North China, to Korea, which is literally next door, and you're like, you're in a different universe. It's very different. People behave differently, etc. I'd say, just maybe simplifying a little bit, you know, there's China, and China is its own backyard. It is such a large market that it commands its own place. I think for a long time there's this view, this is just copycatting, it's just stealing the taxonomy that has worked in the West and we're doing, they're doing it at scale for China. And for a certain period of time, I think that was actually correct. There was quite a lot of copycatting. I don't think it's true anymore. There's a lot of product innovation coming out of China. I'd say there's been a lot of operating model innovation and, and scale innovation coming from China for decades now, well over a decade. You know, We look at some of the big players, the way they do things there is just that the, you know it's a different ball game e-commerce uh, payments guys like Alibaba they've been writing the rules if anything you see players like Amazon and others copying from them Taobao and their success you know Alipay on the payment side etc right you see Tencent being the giant that they are and being very early on to games before anyone thought games were going to be mass market and like they were there very early and they were do a variety of other things probably one of the best corporate venture capital arms I wouldn't call it really a corporate venture capital arm, but Tencent Investments is probably one of the best investors out of any corporate investors out there in the market. So I think there's a lot about scalability of the Chinese model that applied to China. Then the rest of Asia has its own rules. I mean, India, it's India, so it's a little bit similar like China. There's some complexities about India. It's probably less you know, infrastructure rich in terms of development like China, a lot because of national institutional uh, strategy, but a lot of private initiative as well. So there's a lot of interesting things happening there. Southeast Asia seems to be a little bit, when we talk about Southeast Asia, we talk about it like a little bit more monolithically. Although again, they're very different. I mean, Indonesia is a huge country. Uh, Singapore is tiny. So there's a lot of things there. What can you use from it? What can you bring back to us in Western markets? We can bring... Honestly, everything back. I think it just needs to be adapted. I mean, gaming culture, you could say, well, there's things that work in gaming in Asia, and Korea, Japan, China that don't work well in Western markets. That's probably true. So there's obviously user experiences, characters, things that maybe don't resonate as much. But honestly, there's a lot of stuff that does resonate. And the second thing I would say is also, in, and this happened in the good old days of Snapchat, this notion of super apps, which may be less applicable 
to Western markets where it seems like people want stuff more unbundled. So I would say there's actually, you could sort of go through things that maybe don't work and don't resonate and don't scale, but there's a lot of stuff that resonates and scales. I think part of the difficulty is a lot of these Asian markets that I've been talking about are not naturally very good at what I would call international business development. So the ability to strike partnerships, sell internationally for a variety of reasons culturally. It's just sort of not where they're coming from. And sort of in the US, we take that for granted because somehow people are born with a marketing and sales chip on their brain. And, and so they grow up selling, right? They sell stuff all their lives. And then they're like, why are these you know, wonderful companies in Asia not very good at selling here? They're like, they're not used to selling the way you do, right? You know, language barriers, cultural barriers, et cetera. So, so that is also a little bit of, a, of an issue. But I, I do think that you know, Asia is coming, it was coming very hard if we look five, six years back uh, in terms of investments and, and trying to deploy things. Uh, I think it, we'll see more of that. We'll see more of that translation of products from Asia really tapping well into Western markets. In some ways, there's leapfrogging and there's very nuanced leapfrogging that sometimes we fail to associate to it came from China or it came from Asia. Uh, I'll give you two examples. One is like, a, you know, the father of a very good friend of mine, he doesn't use cash anymore in China. I mean, I lived in China for six years. Everyone used cash. I went back after four or five years. I mean, a 70-something-year-old never takes cash with him anymore. He just has his phone. He has WeChat. He has Alipay. He has everything that he needs. He doesn't need anything else. And he's been going on for years now, so it's not a new thing. And now in the U.S., we're like, oh, finally it's coming because of COVID and whatever. People don't want to touch and they want to cash. And so they're I'm like, it's been going in China for a while. Uh, so that's one example. The second example, you know, uh, video streaming, watching TV, movies, obviously, there was a lot of piracy early on in China when I went there with the DVDs that you could buy. And all, I'm not going into details. If I ever bought any DVD, I'm not going to say anything. But honestly, you know, circa 2008, 2009, I got my first Google TV setup box, right? Which I think was done by Logitech. And I connected it to the internet. I put it in front of my TV. And in ways that I won't describe, you know, this was the early days of Qi and a couple of other streaming platforms in China. But there was obviously some dark stuff as well going on. I started using it. And it was very clear to me, this was the future of watching TV and movies. The whole linear thing was in terms of mass market mainstream, was dead. And it was clear to me, as I said, around 2009 or so. And it was in China, right? It wasn't in the US. And in the US, I don't think that was the case back then. So in some ways, they've been showing us the way as well. And sometimes it's not that then the product that was in China becomes big in the US, but the use case gets big in the US. And if we see you know, things like Clubhouse and a lot of these platforms where people get into, you know, into different, in different rooms and share and talk, and there's a facilitator, honestly, started in China. It didn't start here, right? So there's now a lot of actually reverse copycatting that people, I don't know if it's arrogance or if it's maybe lack of that connection, people fail to admit there is a lot of copycatting now happening the other way around in terms of products, right? A lot of people are copying features and products in the US that have been happening in China for years, right? For example, or in other parts of Asia. How do you think, where does your mind go when you think about opportunities here in the United States and within consumer? It could be things you're seeing in other countries and you think Google technology come over here. What just overall broadly just do you find compelling? Yeah, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a laundry list. Uh, there's obviously a, a very overarching thoughts that I have around consumer demographics and how they're changing. The first two are seemingly obvious, but apparently not totally obvious. We have two huge shifts in demographics right now. One is we have probably the first 
senior demographics, so to speak, you know, 60, 65 and above that have been digitally educated. They've, they've worked with digital tools most of their lives. And that takes away a lot of the attrition, a lot of the barrier to entry into technologies like, you know, doing stuff online, doing that on your mobile phone. And that changes how you address that uh, demographic. Uh, so I feel there's a lot of really interesting opportunities around that. Because if you remember, there's always been this thing about the seniors are always a complex demographic because they don't use technology themselves and because there's sort of two buyers in effect. There's one buyer and one user. There's the buyer, which might be one of their kids, right? And then there's the user, which is the father or the mother, right? And I think we're going to start seeing less of that. And since we start seeing less of that, since the buyer and the user start being the same person, everything shifts, everything changes. The use cases change. And honestly, there's so few great things for certain aspects of the life of a senior person that, to be honest, I, I can't see how that doesn't get untapped, right? It's not just support systems and home care and all that stuff, right? It's more than that, right? Social networks and, you know, it's interactivity and it's, you know, gaming as well. It's all of this stuff I think will, will, will shift and change. Then the other one that everyone talks about is obviously Gen Zers, very different generation from millennials. You know, we can go on and on and on, but you know, clearly more authentic in how they look at life, you know, clearly the notion of purpose is more embedded there maybe it's an issue of fear maybe it's an issue fear as in we're all gonna die you know with climate change and all that but there's definitely a notion that is coming with this generation very very different from millennials i'm not saying better or worse but i definitely believe that the use cases that the taxonomy of what's going to lead in terms of services for that generation social networks messaging tools you know how they do stuff you know in terms of productivity that they bring into their own jobs you know bring your own service as i used to call it it's going to be very different and that, I think, creates in itself a sea of opportunities that is pretty amazing. TikTok has sort of taken over the world, in particular because of Gen Zers, late millennials. But I think there's more to come. There's more to come, and it's exciting because nobody can immediately figure it out. So at, at the top end, I would say those are the two key demographic shifts we're, gonna, we're seeing. But then if you go below and things that excite me a lot, like e-commerce, we've been talking about you know, hourly deliveries. And now in some cities, we're starting, starting to see that, you know, capillar, you know, quick commerce, Q commerce is sort of something that is coming actually a lot from India and from China, which if you think about it, are densely populated in these big cities. And so therefore the models work really well. Early days in the US, I don't think it's nailed yet. I, I think the delivery models in the US are all sort of in flux right now. I mean, if you ask me, is Amazon going to be a huge player in the future for sure? But are there going to be other players that might emerge that might have a chance Food tech, food commerce, all of that. I think there's a lot of innovation coming around that excites me a lot. Smart home. So the way I think about it is I think the home is going to be fundamentally shifted and changed. Mobility is going to continue being changed and you know, not just the self-driving car use cases and all that stuff, but there's a fundamental shift around how you move around and why you move around. COVID has also precipitated that in some ways. And then the workplace for sure is going to change and we know that, right? And many people think it's going to be remote. The world's going to be remote. Everyone's going to work from home. I'm pretty sure you know, that's not going to be the case. I bet more on a hybrid model where there's still office, there's still work functions, they're still getting together and then there's home office. Uh, and, and that again shifts everything. So I, I like to look at it a lot from these perspectives, bottom up and top down. And top down, I go through demographics, I go through markets, I go through places, locations, and then I try to understand what are the latent demand use cases. I use, I use this term latent demand use cases that are not being well served or things that could actually be untapped. And then we do a lot of thinking bottom up. We do a lot of thinking bottom up, looking at specific demographics, specific sub-demographics, sub specific segments, and figuring out within products if that those products address them well. 
right? So, so it's a little bit of that mix. It's a mix of, you know, what Excel would call the prepared mind, market analysis, et cetera, in the good old days. You know, Benchmark talks about very bottom-up thinking, complex systems. We're probably closer to the bottom-up root of the world and the benchmark model, so to speak, as a venture capital firm. But at the end, we, we think both ways all the time, top-down, bottom-up, all the time. What are some maybe you cases, since we haven't talked as much on the show about, um, as you say, like seniors are, are, are digitally educated and are now much more and are able to you know use their phones or just use technology in a lot better way. As an investor, is it the type of thing where you think about services and you think, okay, what does maybe like, like a D2C online model look like for that particular service? Or what kind of gets you excited? Uh, maybe it could be like a, a company you saw recently or just as you were kind of thinking about opportunities that gets you excited when it comes to this massive kind of statement that seniors are, are digitally educated. The home environment for seniors is very different. And in some cases, if you have chronic illness, for some reason, your significant others passed away, you're lonely, you're by yourself. So there's a lot of dynamics around your interactions that are quite different within the home. And obviously, there's the logic of if you fall, should you have a device or your phone? All of those use cases, I think, are well understood. And there's a lot of companies out there trying to address that. But it's sort of going beyond that. How does entertainment work then, right? You know, what sort of entertainment would I like to do? How do I communicate with my family, right? You know, we see seniors being, for example, more voice call than you know other demographics for sure right so but you know the voice call demographics maybe are good for video as well right and we've sort of threw video away many years ago many moons ago it's like video one-to-one unless it's professional people don't like to do it all the time and maybe actually there are tools out there that should be done for them gaming entertainment you know, there's this notion that gaming is just for people my generation and below or just for young people. It's not true. You know, a significant part of gamers now, it's it's truly a mainstream phenomenon. And, you know, there, there are elements. I wouldn't say that we need necessarily new gaming companies to do games for seniors. I, maybe there is a play around that at some point in time in terms of game design and game format, etc. But more interesting than that, there's definitely a lot of tooling around social dynamics. I'm not going to use the example of my mother because she's not particularly tech savvy, but let's assume an hypothetical mother that was digitally and technically savvy. She would have difficulty interacting and going to Reddit to figure out what to do in her game, right? She would have difficulty in figuring out Discord, right? And how to interact with other gamers. So you know, are there possibilities around these these types of dimensions that are that are very different? So that's how you look at it. In all honesty, I think in seniors we're we're very thoughtful on the top down, but we also always look at the opportunities because there might be something that just totally disrupts the market. And our view of the world is in demographics that are in rapid changes where it's very unclear exactly where they're gonna end up. You know, you can do the top down work all day long and the market's scanning all day long. And the latent, you know, the the latent demand use cases that I was talking about earlier, but at some point you just need to look at a lot of companies and be like, okay, I don't think this is going to be interesting, and and so that volume is also important, high quality companies, but at volume that you can see in a specific area to to make up your mind to see what's what's probably next out there. I mean, to give you a very stupid example, direct consumer is obvious that needs to be shifted. I mean, the DTC 1.0 model, you know, has shown us that just marketing innovation, SEO, all these things is not enough. There needs to be product innovation. And as we look at product innovation, we also start looking at other types of innovation and interaction, right? So for again, for seniors, making it really, really simple to interact with the service, figure out how to do, for example, a claim or send something back or all of that. I mean, honestly, e-commerce in many senior segments, it hasn't been sorted at all, right? It's still in its infancy because it's complex because I want to put my credit card on that website and how does that work? And, and then if I get it and I don't like it, what do I do? And 
you know, we take it for granted because we can go and send emails to the customer service, get on calls for a long time, do whatever. And we started out, right? It's probably ready for the picking. We probably have already all the tools that we need to make these experiences really good. And maybe it's going to be done by existing players that are doing direct consumer e-commerce, but maybe not. Maybe that's not the, the angle, right? Maybe there are SKUs out there and a bunch of opportunities that will be driven by other players in the market. I'll give you a stupid example, right? We take for granted that we want more and more ephemeral communication, right? You know, Snapchat, all these things that have evolved. Now we, would, we don't want to actually be able to see things that we sent or someone sent to us for a long period of time. It's very ephemeral, whatever. If you believe that the world in some ways, you know, email is still has its place in the world, but it's sort of an old technology, but there's other messaging technologies that are much better. The issue of persistency of information is very important for seniors, right? It's like, where can I find that thing you sent me the other day again? I mean, I'm getting this question from my mom all the time. It's like, you know, you send me this, where can I find it again? It's like, you know, and, and, and thank God she's not switching phones at the pace that I'd switch phones because otherwise we would have a real problem, right? But persistency of information, how do you manage the persistency of that information in a communication tool? Maybe, again, the current communication tool providers, the WhatsApps, et cetera, of the world can address that. Maybe they can't. Maybe it needs to be something totally different. And so, again, there's use cases that you're like, oh, oh but, but that's been sort of in the, pro- in the past. Yeah, cool. It was sort of in the past, but because we evolved in terms of generations, the current mainstream offerings in terms of features have taken it away. It's not a given anymore. And so uh, how do you address that, for example, is pretty interesting. How do you think about that as an investor um, overall? Is it kind of like a race to the bottom with price and just thinking that, oh, like, like the TAM, of course, is, is massive, so it's okay? I mean, the, how do you think about that space overall? We're an early stage investor. We're an early stage VC, but we have, we've all been entrepreneurs. In the partnership, we've all been entrepreneurs. We've all been operators at scale. We've done really large scale ups and we've all been, you know, investors for a long time. And so we've learned the hard way that you can't just disconnect your sort of skeptical mind into it. And so the first thing we actually think is actually something that comes much later on, which is unit economics. And we're like, how can this work, right? And then normally early stage guys, we don't think too much about that. But in this case, it's like, wait, wait, wait a second. Can we look at the large guys and figure out if they can ever hit unit economics that are positive on this and at what scale they would need to hit it? So I think the skeptic in me, and just to give a very short answer, because I could sort of ramble on this for a couple of hours. It's, it's, a, it's a passion of mine. The first sort of the skeptical one says there's no way in hell that the small guy is going to win this, right? Maybe a couple of small guys are going to be bought out, but then the Amazons of the world just win it because it's an extension of capillarity for them. And they have the ability to make the unit economics work at scale with infrastructure. If you look at what Alibaba did in China with Rema and all their stores for last mile delivery, you know, these corner shops, which they're super smart. They've used these corner shops, not just for corner shops, but also for distribution, right? That's like nailing it, right? And again, Alibaba did it, right? It wasn't uh, an incumbent and it wasn't a startup that came from out of nowhere. And so there's one part of me that says, that says, you know, it's it's then, in my analogy, a feature rather than a business, right? And if it's a feature, it gets bought by a big business. I do think there is something interesting in how you rethink local delivery, how you rethink, in particular, the one-hour delivery or less, right? But again, it's horses for courses. It's, it's like, do I always need one-hour delivery? I'm not sure you do. And I'm pretty sure you don't. And so, you know, what is it useful for? And in some ways, I think there's obvious use cases. You need something last minute. Uh, Emergence, you're preparing a lunch, a dinner, you have a party, you're missing something, you know, you're sick. I mean, there's all these use cases that we can come up pretty quickly, but there might be something else to it. And I think that's the part we're still missing in that space. I haven't met a startup that come, come to me is like, okay, there's all of that stuff, cool. But this is a really big business, not because of all of that stuff, but because of this because of these use cases that you guys haven't seen yet, right? And that's the future, right? That's what's going to happen next. 
I haven't seen that yet. So again, you know, the optimist in me says maybe I'll find that at some point. It's like you know, looking for Cinderella. We're still looking, <laughs> but, but maybe we'll find it. <laughs> or Cinderella looking for the for the prince in, a, in the other way. But in some ways, I think we're missing missing that piece, right? What makes this work? Is it is it a problem that really needs to be solved? And I don't see a lot of people questioning it. Everyone's like, of course. Because we've gone down from months of delivery time to weeks, to two days, and to one day. So obviously the next step is one hour. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but one hour is a different problem, right, altogether logistically. So do we really need it? And what would it be for, right? For example, I haven't seen, this is shocking. I'm sure there, there are players doing this right now in the market. I'm sure after this podcast, I'm going to get a, a message on LinkedIn from one of them because they're always like, oh, you mentioned this and we're doing it. Like, I haven't seen a guy who's doing quick commerce just for produce, for example, or quick commerce just for fresh meat or protein or whatever, just for that. Like, I, this is what we're nailing, right? Yeah, and, and this is how we expand our use cases. And it's interesting to me because they're like, oh, I'm giving you all these things, you know, your Kit Kats and whatever, like Kit Kat, whatever. I can go to the supermarket. It's next door, right? Uh, so, so it's like, what, what else can you give me? We'll see. So the jury is definitely still out on quick commerce. I'm, we spend a lot of time on it. I'm not sure if we'll make a lot of investments in the space. The key concern is really unit economics and how it scales, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about Chameleon. How did Chameleon come together? So Chameleon is my new VC firm and my third fund. And it really coalesces or came together around three people that just wanted to work together. <laughs> Actually, it's more than three now, but it started with three. And me, uh, Dr. Song Yun, and, and Alex Santos in, in Europe. And the three of us have known each other for a long time. Song Yi and I have known each other for 14 years now. Uh, we've been investing together for four years. Alex and I have known each other for six years. We've been investing together for five, five and a half years. And so it's just a bunch of people that, to be honest, in our own right, we could probably do a single GP firm ourselves. Around the table, we could just do our own funds. But we just wanted to do it together. And the reason why I think we wanted to do it together is, one, a lot of trust and respect in each other at all levels, intellectual, you know, emotional. We actually have the first thing we wrote together as a partnership was our value system, which is in our website. At chameleon.vc, it's chameleon with AE in the middle, just to be clear. Chameleon.vc, and um, and it was the first time, the first thing we actually wrote. I mean, before we even started fundraising, honestly, it's like this is our value system, and and we aligned by it. And the second part, why we really wanted to work together, is we're all very different. I mean, we just, I mean, I, as I mentioned, I'm an hardcore ambivert, uh, extrovert, introvert. You know, one of my partners is very introvert. The other partner is what I'd call marginally extrovert. Uh, we bring very different skill sets to the table, experiences to the table. We get excited about different things. And I think that's what makes for a great partnership in venture capital. It's a partnership that is extremely diverse, right? Extremely IIQ. At least there's a couple of people on the team that are extremely IEQ, right? But extremely diverse. But where there's a place where we all come together. Right? where we all align, where we all trust each other. And that place is our values, the values we share. And that's, if you think about, if you talk to you know, partnerships that have dissolved in venture capital, a lot of these partnerships that have dissolved in venture capital were dissolved because of that, right? They were dissolved because of, you know, ego started getting in the way, there were problems, there were things that didn't happen at scale, and, you know, there wasn't that much alignment around value system. Probably they did think in the first place that they would have, but they didn't in the end. And also, I mean, they might have dissolved because they might not have known each other very long. Yeah. Right? And the fact that you three have, have known each other for a long time, and also really um, dissected in terms of what are your diversity in terms of introvert, extrovert, and kind of what you bring to the table there, I think it's, that's obviously really important. And we talk a lot about, you know, complementary skills for founders and co-founders, but it's also the same is true with VC funds. 
It's worse. In a startup, you have a CEO normally. I mean, there's some cases where people go with co-CEO type structures, but you normally have a CEO. And a CEO is the person that will fight, make final calls. In most venture capital firms, there's a partnership and calls are distributed. And in some cases, you don't need to have unanimity to make those calls. And, and so I always say this is actually even worse. In some ways, it's like a marriage where we see each other all the time, we interact all the time, we make decisions together all the time on, on the stupidest things, right? And this is, we'd never scale at the scale of a startup. So it's not like we magically will have silos of 100 people that we're managing down the road. We won't, right? We, you know, we're going to be 13 people and that's already a really large VC firm by Silicon Valley standards. Like we're part of the 5% that has more than 10%, that, that has 10 or more people. So again, honestly, it's very tough. I, I would like to put the plug in of the other part of why we did Chameleon the way we did it. There's two really distinctive aspects of what we do at Chameleon. One is all VC firms have advisors, scouts, all of this stuff, and they have different programs. We were like, this is too complicated. <laughs> we have one program and it's called Hashtag Kin and we bring everyone underneath. And it might be that they're going to help our portfolio companies. It might be that they help us. It might be that they actually help our LPs in whatever capacity, right? Scouts, operators, advisors, whatever. They're hashtag kin, right? And, and they're all under this umbrella. And, you know, it's been, we haven't launched it officially yet, but it's been a wonderful experience to put that together from, from our experiences in the past, having worked all over the world. The second piece, which is probably even more uncommon in early stage for sure, and I think overall in venture capital, is we venture capital investors Almost all of us invest in tech, but we don't use any tech. <laughs> so, so it's like, so we make money out of investing in tech companies that go and sell to other businesses, to people and do stuff and whatever. And then we don't use it. It's like, cool. And now we start seeing some people who have their tech stack. They have their affinity for CRM and they're doing some stuff around desk research, whatever. We actually have a quantum tech team that's larger than our deal team. We develop our own engines in-house for deal sourcing, due diligence, portfolio management. We think through these things at length, right? And there has to be this notion that it has to be deeply embedded in everything we do as a deal team. And so, you know, I'm one of the product managers on this. I'm one of the people that interacts more directly with the technology team. You have to have this interaction all the time. It's like, what, what new features do you need? When I meet the tech team, I always have new requirements and stuff. We're always discussing and negotiating on timelines. So I'm like, I'm back to my good old days of product management. It's that type of obsession that you need to have to make it work because it needs to be deeply embedded in your processes as a venture capital firm. And we set out to do this, not because we want to be disruptors, not because we think other VC firms are all crap. It's not true. There are great VC firms out there, but because we think this is, needs to be done. This is the only way to scale this asset class properly. This is the only way to do this asset class in a way that is not only more fact-based and better, but it actually provides better and more predictable returns, which is historically what's been wrong with this asset class. And so in some ways, we believe in people. Hashtag Kin is a proof of that. We believe power of making that final call on the person we were working with and the entrepreneur. But there's this lack of technology and quantitative assessment and data that is you know, sorely missed, I think, in, in the early stage side. And we're addressing that with Chameleon. No, I, I love that. And I would also love to know how does the quantum tech team collaborate with the deal team? Because I'd imagine that the reason why other VC firms may not have, you know, a quantum tech side is because, you know, there just isn't that much data at the very early stages on companies and what have you. Is the quantum tech, is that looking more so at maybe top-down analysis at at industries and kind of like the macro lens? What's kind of like the relationship between the quantum tech and 
and the deal team. So I, I, I won't divulge a lot, right? I won't open the kimono fully because there's a lot of stuff here that's, it's not just confidential proprietary, but it's more than that. It's nuanced, right? It's like I might say something that some people interpret, oh, that's pretty simple to do. And I'm like, we spent one month doing that, right? So it's not that simple, okay? So let me give you an example. We have several criteria sets. Let's say we have a criteria set that is linked to, to talent, right? We're looking for pointers and signals that show if the talent on that company, right, is great or not, and we want to score it, okay? And so if we want to score it, there's a bunch of stuff we can go out to, right? I mean, we can have access to different data sources, you know, LinkedIn. There could be some paid data sources out there. Talent may not be a great example for that. We go into AngelList, we go into Classifieds, we look into D&D, we look at a bunch of other data sources. We scrape information from the internet. We get all of this information in, we try and make sense of it. We try and like, okay, this is noise information. I try, I want to make sense of it, right? And so when we make sense of all of it, we then basically transform it into something that's actionable and that is, you know, uniquely positioned for us to have a score that links to it. Then as you start having a lot of data points, you can see what does the 90th percentile look like for that vertical? Are these guys well above that percentile or not, right? And so think of this as one criteria set, but then we have multiple criteria sets, not just talent. And then we have an overall score, and then we have a bunch of other stuff. And out of that, we basically generate you know, something that is actionable. So for example, for deal sourcing, we'd be able to generate an outbound list for specific verticals where I, as a deal team member, can pick up on that outbound and then reach out to that to that company and say, okay, these guys are interesting because their score is high from our engine and it wasn't on my radar. And it's almost magical because once you do it really well, you might be talking to companies, just to give one example, you might be talking to companies that are not raising yet, but might be thinking of raising on two or three months. And two or three months time advantage on deal flow is the advantage between getting a great valuation or not, getting pulled into a bidding war or party round or not, etc. So these are just some of the elements we do. We do a bunch of other stuff. We do workflow automations. We do you know a lot of stuff. I, I reached out to an entrepreneur the other side. It's like the first, he replied to me, he's like, that's the first you know, venture capital firm that you know, I've talked to that reached out to me saying, you popped up in our analytics engine. <laughs> okay, so addressing the second part of your question very, very quickly, it's like, it's clear that in early stage, the data is noisier, the data is less complete, and the data in many cases is crappy. But there is still data. That's the part, you know, it's just more difficult. It's more difficult to extract it. It's more difficult to transform it. It's more difficult to make it actionable and make it into a signal. That's, that's the part that's more difficult. You know, I, I really appreciate you sharing because my initial assumption was that it's thinking about uh, the actual analytics of the company, which that also might be true, but I think that what I appreciate, because we talk about so much on the show about how at the early stages you're investing in the team, because really that's all you got um, in a lot of ways. And so you're actually using data and this quantum part of your fund to actually analyze the actual teams itself um, in terms of what actually could stand out for you, uh, which I think is amazing. And it's not just teams, right? I mean, think of it as everything, markets and product market fit and all sorts of things. It's not just teams. Team is an example that others also do. And again, it's not just for deal sourcing. We also do this for due diligence with primary data because you then get primary data from, from the startups you talk to, right? You get their own data. Uh, portfolio management after you invest. So, so this is actually much broader than just reaching out with people on talent, right? You know, that's just one very little thing of a really big engine. To your point, I never understood that point that people make in early stages all about people. It's certainly about people, but it's not all about people. Okay, that's the point. The all is the problem I have. It's about people. You need to analyze people. You know, are they grit? Did they have the grit to take this next level? They have the skills to take the next level. Do they have the ability to, over the next two to three years, without hiring anyone, almost 
take it to a next level. I mean, there's all of these elements there. It's like market assessment. Again, I'm not talking about all VC investors and all VC firms, but there's many VC investors, many VC firms like, no, no, there's no market analysis. What do you mean there's no market analysis you can do? Of course, there are market analysis you can do. Market analysis, market is there, right? Oh, no, no, but they're market creators. I mean, tell me, are there that many market creators in the market right now that are huge companies? No, they just came into a market that existed, disrupted it, and took something. There maybe have been market expansion, but it took something out of that market. In general, there's no from the ground up market creation, right? So, because market creation is very difficult. There's a lot of enabling pieces that need to be done to it. So, so no, yeah, of course you can do market analysis. You can do outside in market analysis. Where do, where do these guys fit? Is there headwind or tailwind for this market? And honestly, you can have the best founders ever, but if they're totally committed to a market, if they're not willing to pivot, if they don't have the agility to go after it, and they are in a really difficult market that will never be really large or there's a lot of competition, et cetera, it is very difficult to win. I have never seen, market always wins. I always say that. Markets win. So if the market is crap, you are not going to make it great. It's very uncommon that you'll make it great. Like, you know, honestly. Uh, now people would always give me like, Uber, taxi market was huge, right? Okay. So when I say crap, it's actually, it was a great market to go into because it was regulated. And the players that were in the market were not very incentivized to make this a great user experience, right? So I would say that market was not crap. That was a good market to go into. It was tough and there's regulation and there's all the issues they had to solve. But honestly, there's a lot of elements that make it a great market that doesn't make it a crap market. What's one book that inspired you professionally and one book that inspired you personally? I'll give you three. Professionally, many but I'd go to the seminal one that I think changed my life. It's when I decided maybe I wasn't going to be an engineer. I was going to be a manager or do something around business, which was the Post-Capitalist Society by Peter Drucker. Uh, Drucker, for those who don't know, was a former journalist who many now credit, uh, he's now passed away, but many now credit with having invented management science, you know, giving science term to management. Uh, amazing, amazing guy. All of the books that I read from him were incredible. But the Post-Capitalist Society is the one that sort of introduces this notion that there's going to be information rich and information poor people, that information is going to be more valuable than money. And in some ways, we now see that, right? You know, capitalism is actually linked to information, right? So it's like, it's maybe it's not post-capitalist society, but it's a society that has really gone to the technology side and the information and data. So that that's one book on the, on the professional side, personal side, The How of Happiness. And, you know, this was uh, written by, and I don't want to slaughter her name, but it's Sonia Lyobo. Mirsky, she was a PhD from Stanford. I think she's now a professor, maybe at UC Riverside, if I'm not mistaken. Amazing book. I, I, I dislike self-help books a lot, but this is like a really good self-help book. It's very fact-based. There's a lot of science behind it. And I've used it myself. And you know, you know, we all go through our own moments in life. And I read it at the right moment of my life. It was a fantastic book. And then I would add one on the spiritual side, which, uh, which I read more recently, which has been very interesting to inform me. It's sort of on the spiritual, semi-religious stuff, but it's, it's interesting, which is called Modern Physics, Ancient Faith, uh, which is a really interesting turn on what's happening with physics and how we're changing our view of the world with physics and then pull it all back to spirituality, the existence of God and all that stuff. It's a really interesting book. Even for those who are not religious, it's a very thought-provoking book because, again, it's you know a lot of science, a lot of interesting things in it. Nudo, um, really excited to to add these to our book list, and I appreciate the reasons why. Um, you're very original. I don't think we've had anyone on the show mention these books. This is, this is brilliant. Nudo, thanks again for your time. This has been so much fun. It's been fun. Thank you, Mike. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Nuno. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.